Section 13 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8 The Battle of Blorheath and the Attainder of the Yorkists. For two years following the Great Reconciliation at St. Paul's, March 25, 1458, England had a very varied history. First, there came eighteen months of outward peace when affairs drifted on without any catastrophe. Then came an open battle in the land, with some thousands engaged on either side, September 23, 1459, at Blore Heath, in the county of Stafford. And finally, the kingdom was for a time actually dismembered, England remaining under Henry VI, Ireland offering a safe refuge to the outlawed Duke of York, and Calais being held as a small but warlike sea-state by the Earl of Warwick. At the end of this time, July 2, 1460, the Yorkists, from their strong base at Calais, came back to England to pursue a long, though not uninterrupted, career of victory. During these two years, the figure of the Earl of Warwick stands out in bold relief. His vigor, ability, mental and physical vitality shed a light of romance and adventure over the political quarrels of the time. As admiral of the seas, though repudiated by the king, his fame was sufficient to attract the best sailors of England to his flag. As captain of Calais, he kept the city free from French and Burgundian alike, a safe refuge for all his fugitive friends. Royal ships, Royal officers came against them in vain. They were met before they left the soil of England, and they were carried off in triumph to Calais. When he himself replied by recrossing the narrow seas to England, he found the way open to London almost with a triumphal progress. The year 1458 would have ended quietly for the country, but for an unfortunate fray in London, which might have cost the Earl of Warwick his life. He had been attending a council at Westminster, apparently to give an account of his naval exploits, especially of his attack on some Lübeck merchantmen. As he was leaving the palace and going toward his barge, a fight began between one of his followers and a servant of the court. The fight became general between Warwick's men and members of the royal household, and it was with the utmost difficulty that the earl fought his way to his barge and escaped by water with his men. It has been suspected that this fray was deliberately planned by the Lancastrian leaders in order to get rid of the great earl. Warwick did not feel himself safe till he had got back to his stronghold at Calais. But the Yorkists, who were left behind in England, did not feel themselves safe. Warwick, before going back to Calais, had time to visit his father and the Duke of York. Together they had begun to concert measures for their safety, and for checking the party which was in the ascendancy at court, but they agreed that no violence was to be offered to the person of the king. The queen and her friends meanwhile prepared for war. Thus it is impossible to say which side was responsible for the outbreak of hostilities in September 1459, for each had been making preparations all through the year. The journeys of the court in the western counties in the previous two years had not been without effect. The queen was now found to have quite a large party in her favor in the county of Chester, 
and also, it seems, in Hereford and Gloucester. Many of the gentlemen of Chester had accepted the livery, or rather the badge, of the young Prince Edward, a silver swan, and thus had bound themselves to his cause. It was even rumoured that the Queen had proposed that King Henry should abdicate the throne in favour of her son. But this would have been the most foolish of moves, for no one objected to the king, but only to his wife and her friends. The king was not inactive. In April he was sending out privy seals to all the gentlemen whom he judged faithful to be present at Leicester on May 10th. But nothing seems to have come of this assembly. It was in the next two months that the queen was so active giving badges in the county of Chester. The Duke of York seems to have been living at Ludlow, where he had a strong castle, much property, and many friends and tenants. The Earl of Salisbury was in the north at Middleham in Yorkshire. The Earl of Warwick was at Calais, from which in September he is said to have made another successful descent upon a fleet of Spanish and Genoese merchantmen. The three great Yorkist chiefs kept as far as possible in communication with each other. As each side was collecting armed forces and each distrusted the other, it is immaterial to discuss who moved first. Early in September, the Earl of Salisbury moved southwards from Middleham with 3,000 men to join the Duke of York at Ludlow. The King and Queen had also strong forces in hand. The King was at Worcester with a body of men. Lord Audley was further north raising the militia and gentlemen of Chester and Shrewsbury, with a commission from the King to arrest the Earl of Salisbury. He met the Earl on September 23rd on Bloor Heath in Staffordshire, and a sharp battle ensued. The Yorkists were outnumbered by three to one, but the wooded nature of the country was favourable to defence. They took up a position with a wood on one flank, on the other they formed a barricade with their carts and baggage. Behind, to guard against a rear attack, they had dug a trench, and in front they planted stakes after the manner of England. The battle was vigorously contested from one o'clock till five. Then, after Lord Audley had lost his life, the Lancastrian forces gave way, and the Earl's men were left in possession of the field. But their position was by no means secure. Their victory had only given them a respite. A fresh royal army was not far off, the Queen with one portion being only five miles distant at Eccles Hall, and the King with the rest only ten miles away. The Earl of Salisbury dared not stay at Bloor Heath that night, lest he should be overwhelmed by the combined royal forces in the morning. On the other hand, if he left the field at once and continued his way to Ludlow, he would be followed by the resolute Queen, and caught at an even greater disadvantage than if he stayed on the field. As it happened, however, his retreat was cleverly concealed from the royal leaders, who imagined him to be spending the night after the battle on the field. In the evening, he made off as quietly as he could with his forces, leaving his artillery behind him, and an Austin friar, who stayed too, kept firing off the guns all that night, so that the Lancastrians thought the Earl's men were still encamped there. On the morning of the 24th, the royal forces advanced to Bloor Heath and found it empty, save for the friar and when they demanded of him what he did there, he said he had stayed in the field all night because he was afraid to leave it. 
Evidently the friar, who had been holding off 15,000 men all night, had a sense of humor as well as great courage. So the Earl of Salisbury with his men reached Ludlow safely. The eagles were gathering together, for the Earl of Warwick soon came up too. Leaving his father's brother, Lord Falkenberg, in command of Calais, he had embarked for England, having on board with him two hundred lances, or men-at-arms, and four hundred archers. He landed in Kent, where many men joined his standard, and so he passed on to London, where he was always a popular figure. He could have held London for the Duke of York, for all the king's men were with the king and queen in Staffordshire, but he pressed on through the Midlands, passing near Coventry at Kozel. The Duke of Somerset was in Coventry with a body of men, but the two luckily did not meet. Warwick was able to pursue his way unchallenged to Ludlow, where he found his father and the Duke of York. King Henry was still in the field with large forces, but although his position was strong, he did not wish civil war to go further, so he sent an offer of pardon and peace to the Yorkist lords at Ludlow. To this they replied that they had already experienced the futility of such pardons, owing to the bad counsellors who surrounded him, and they specially called attention to the fact that they themselves had been consistently left out of the council, and that the Earl of Warwick, not long before this, when called by Privy Seal to the council at Westminster, had been set upon and had nearly lost his life. They reiterated their respect for the king's person. On receiving this answer, Henry, displeased at the reception of his offer, set his forces in motion at once. When he drew near to Ludlow, he received another letter from the Yorkist lords, testifying to their respect for his person and their freedom from any desire to injure him. In proof of this, they said they had retired from one place to another, from shire to shire, in order to avoid a conflict. Now they found themselves in the extreme west, and there was no other place they could retreat to with honor. So they humbly waited the king's arrival, hoping it would be peaceful. It is very difficult at this point to apportion praise or blame to either side. The Yorkists felt they could not safely disband, so long as the king gave his confidence to the Duke of Somerset, the Earl of Wiltshire, the Duke of Exeter, and others whom they believed to be their personal enemies. Nor could Henry, if he was to justify himself as a king at all, meekly send away his forces and receive the Duke of York and the earls on their own terms. A simultaneous disbandment of troops on each side would perhaps have been a satisfactory preliminary to a peace conference and settlement, but by this time all confidence was gone from each party. When things have got into such a condition of uncertainty and distrust, there seems no way left but to fight it out to the end. As it turned out, the king controlled the situation. He had two great advantages. In the first place, he was king. All his subjects owed allegiance to him, and if they fought against them, they fought with an uneasy mind. In the second place, he had real power. The Lancastrian state was weak because its head was weak, but for once Henry had shown real vigor. For some months now he had been campaigning with great courage and firmness, so he had called out the latent strength which is ready in any country for the king who acts firmly. The Duke of York had made a fortified camp at Ludford behind the river team near Ludlow. He had dug a ditch, supplied with water from the river, 
and he had strengthened it with a line of carts and of stakes. Behind this his artillery was drawn up, ready to play upon the royal forces. The two armies faced each other on either side of the river on October 12th, with about half a mile between them. But no fighting took place that day. The king had it proclaimed that a pardon should be granted to anyone who should come over to the royal presence and implore his mercy. The news circulated in the camp of the Yorkists. During the night, a large defection took place under Andrew Trollope, one of Warwick's men who had lately come from Calais with the Earl. With Trollope, there left most of the men-at-arms who had come from Calais. The Earl probably had taken the least trustworthy with him when he left the town, leaving those who were devoted to him to safeguard Calais behind him. The Duke saw that he had no chance. It is said that the King had thirty thousand fully armed men, besides naked, unarmored men, who were compelled for to come with the King. It is unlikely that the Duke of York, especially after Trollope's desertion, had more than four or five thousand. Before the night was over, the Yorkists broke up their camp and withdrew under cover of darkness. There seems to have been practically no fighting except for a certain amount of cannonading from the Duke's camp. Finding in the morning that the Yorkists had escaped, the King's army passed on and sacked the town of Ludlow. They also spoiled other small towns of that district which were on the estate of the Duke of York. After this, the royal army made its way back to Worcester, and there the king, having taken the advice of his council, gave notice that Parliament would meet at Coventry on November 20th to consider what means should be taken with regard to the late troubles. Meanwhile, the Yorkist leaders were making their way out of the country as best they could. The Duke of York, with a small party including his second son, Edmund, Earl of Rutland and of Ulster, was fleeing through Wales, breaking the bridges behind him as he went, so as to make his retreat safe. He obtained a passage to Ireland and arrived there probably at Dublin, where the nobles and officials, who had known him in his former days as Lord Lieutenant, received him with reverence, goodwill and affection, as one for whose promised return they had long been waiting with eagerness and expectation. Warwick and Salisbury, with York's eldest son, Edward, Earl of March, and another Yorkist, Sir John Wenlock, who had been Speaker of the Commons in 1455, made their way southwards into Devonshire, hoping to obtain a passage to Calais. In Devon, by the help of a local gentleman, Sir John Denham, they purchased a small vessel, and engaging the services of a few sailors embarked for some port, apparently on the south coast. But the sailors knew nothing more than the coasting routes. On hearing this, the noblemen stood aghast, but Warwick bade them be comforted, saying that with the help of God and St. George he would lead them to a port of safety. And so, taking the tiller himself, he gave orders that the sail should be raised. The wind was favorable, and thus he steered the vessel to Guernsey. There they waited till the wind again was favorable. After eight days, fortune favored them, and they were able to sail to Calais, where Lord Falkenberg with the garrison received them joyfully. The campaign, if such it might be called, of Blorheath and Ludford, had an appropriate epilogue in the Parliament which met at Coventry on November 20th, and attainted the Yorkist lords. To the upper house the whole peerage was summoned except the Duke of York, the Earls of Salisbury and Warwick, and Lord Clinton. 
Most of the peers who generally belonged to the Duke of York's party, such as the Duke of Norfolk, Lord Bonville, Lord Storton, had not taken part in the recent insurrection, and so were not afraid to attend the Parliament. The Knights of the Shire were in many cases simply nominated by the great Lancastrian lords and returned by the sheriffs without election. Parliament, therefore, offered no obstacle to the policy of the King's party. A bill of attainder was brought in, recounting the unconstitutional acts of the Duke of York from the time of Jack Cade's insurrection. The chief men attainted were York, Salisbury, Warwick, Thomas and John, brothers of Warwick, captured, as it seems, at Ludford, two sons of Lord Berkshire, Lord Clinton, Lord Grey of Powys, a number of Yorkist knights, and Alice, Countess of Salisbury. The king reserved to himself the right of pardon, and as a matter of fact no one suffered execution. The only great peer attainted who was actually in the king's power was Lord Grey of Powys. He, having voluntarily come over and submitted himself to the king's grace, was pardoned in respect of his life, but his property was forfeited. The Duchess of York, who had submitted herself to the King's grace, was given into the charge of the Duke of Buckingham, whose wife was her own sister. This rising, therefore, was not marked by any slaughter in cold blood such as followed the later battles. The chief offenders were out of reach. Many of the minor offenders had come before the King in their shirts with halters about their necks, and these were pardoned in life and limb. The rest who figured in the Bill of Attainder were likewise pardoned. Before Parliament dissolved, as it did within one month of meeting, an oath of allegiance to the king was taken by the assembled lords, spiritual and temporal, along with an additional oath that they would defend the young Prince Edward's right to the throne. In less than one year, this last oath was formally to be broken. End of section 13